If you have a, a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 is where we're going to be this morning. John 16. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 16 through 24. So John 16, 16 through 24 is where we're going to be this morning. You can go ahead and be turning there. Um, we'll read it here in just a few minutes, but we want to open in, in a kind of a uh, kind of an extended introduction before we get there. Okay, uh, you know the Bible, as well as ancient historical research, resources, tell us that all of Jesus's twelve apostles experienced severe persecution. In fact, historical you know, documents, as well as the Bible, tell us that all but one of those apostles was martyred for their faith. They were killed because they were followers of Jesus. You know, the human experience that we all know will tell us. You know, that when our circumstances are bad, like say those of the apostles I just mentioned, that it's normal to respond with things like sadness, things like anger, things like discouragement, or in their case, it would have made perfect sense in the human experience to say, well, they're going to go into hiding or they're going to be, uh, you know, living under a rock because people are seeking their heads. But that's not what happens, is it? You go read the book of Acts. That's not at all the way that it pans out. Despite death warrants that were on the apostles' heads, they publicly served with not hiddenness, but with passion and with joy. Not just in the history books that the Bible even talks about that. The Bible also tells us of this joy despite bad circumstances. I mentioned the book of Acts. In Acts, we see that the disciples were kicked out of the synagogues, as we saw at the beginning of chapter 16, that Jesus told them what happened, right? They were kicked out of the synagogues, which meant a lot worse than just being excommunicated from the church. It meant that their lives in their culture as they knew it was over, all right? We even talked about that, right? That even their families would throw a funeral for them because they were as good as dead. Their lives were going to be times of suffering, a time where their circumstances were not so good. They were scorned by the religious elite. In fact, if you go and read Acts chapter 5, you see that the apostles were questioned. This is after Jesus is gone, okay? They're questioned by the high priest for their actions. They're rebuked for preaching the gospel, and they were beaten. And you expect someone that's tortured to be angry, but the Bible doesn't say that. In Acts 5, it says after they were beaten, they weren't angry, but they were joyful. In fact, it says that they were more happy, more joyful than they were before they got beaten. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? You see, we do not face that type of persecution that countless disciples of Jesus past and present day experience. Yet, in their poverty and in their affliction, they found joy. While in our abundance and in our ease, we often struggle to be content and joy-filled people zealous for the Lord. What gives? Here's the problem. The problem is that our circumstances oftentimes dictate our emotions and our affections. That's the reality of it, right? That oftentimes our circumstances dictate our emotions and our affections. So how did the disciples, the disciples were just men. They were, they were people just like us. How did they prevent that? Here's the answer. Regardless of circumstances, a true disciple finds liberating and lasting joy as they cling, not to their circumstances, but as they cling to the power of the cross. I'll say that again. Regardless of circumstances, a true disciple finds liberating and lasting joy as they cling to the power of the cross. And we see this certainly in John chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. So let's look at it together. John 16, 16 through 24. It may be on the screen behind me, I think. Right, John? We got it? Okay. For some reason I had a, a lapse in judgment. I was like, did I put the right chapter and verses up there? So, okay, good. All right. 
John 16, 16 through 24, this is what uh, John writes down for us to study. It says this, Jesus is talking. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you'll not see me again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for a joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father, or ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. This uh, part of John is known as the farewell discourse. And I've mentioned that before. It's really uh, several chapters, chapters 14, yeah, 14 through 16. And chapter 17, it sort of ends, okay? But this farewell discourse is just that. Jesus is bidding them farewell. He's saying, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going somewhere else. Where I'm going, you can't come with me. And so he's giving them final exhortations, final words of encouragement, because they're discouraged. Their master of three years is leaving. They've left everything, and yet now he's leaving them. What are they supposed to do? And so they're deeply discouraged, and as this discourse is coming to an end, Jesus' agenda is this, to encourage them and to strengthen the resolve of his disciples. Why? Well, because he would leave them, and they would feel abandoned, and they would be afraid, and they would be hated, as we looked at not long ago, and their circumstances would be difficult. In fact, like we already talked about, they would be cast out of the synagogues. And so Jesus' point is this. Contrary to what your experience has taught you, because of what I'm going to do, your joy is not determined by your circumstances. Okay? Contrary to what your human experience tells you, you have a joy that is not dependent on your earthly circumstances. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is going to be our structure. You have two qualities of the believer's joy when anchored in the gospel. Two qualities of my joy when anchored in the gospel. And the first is resistance to attack. Qualities of the believers, my joy when anchored in the gospel, the first is resistance to attack. Guys, life is emotional, right? Even if you're a real, you know, hard-nosed dude that doesn't really get emotional, you can't deny the facts. Life is emotional. There are happy times, there are sad times, there are rough times, and there are great times. That's how life is. It has its ups and downs. The disciples would know the roller coaster of life's emotions very soon. In fact, this would be a very crazy weekend for them, wouldn't it? We talked about it a minute ago with the kids. It's the most amazing and yet most difficult weekend of all time. And these guys were deeply interwoven with that. And so 
their emotions were about to be on a roller coaster. And so Jesus is going to hit that. Look at verses 16 through 18. It kind of is sounding kind of complicated, but I'll explain what this means. He says, a little while and you'll see me no longer. Again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is he talking about? Okay. They say, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. So in short, they're confused, okay? They're walking, and they're, you know, they're walking over to the Valley of Kidron. They'll make their way to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane very soon. They've left the upper room, and so they're kind of <clears throat> on this walking journey. While they're walking, Jesus says this very strange phrase to them that he's leaving, but he'll only be gone for a little while. And so we kind of can get underneath the text here and kind of figure out what the situation is. That the disciples are maybe kind of lagging behind, or maybe two or three are grouped over here, and some are over here. And John paraphrases by saying that the disciples were essentially murmuring to one another. Jesus is maybe up there, and they're like, what in the world is he talking about? What is he, what is he talking about? He's going to be gone for a little while. Didn't, didn't he say he was leaving and we couldn't go with him or something like that? What is he, what exactly is he talking about? And so this is what's going on. And so Jesus is referring to the time between his crucifixion and the time that he will appear before them post-resurrection. All right. So that's the little while. The little while is I'm going to go and I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified, but he won't be gone forever because I'm going to appear to you once again. So a little while, about a day and a half, three days, right? I'm going to be gone, and then you're going to see me again. And so he addresses their confusion and wants to explain it. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, here's what he's talking about, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will will turn into joy. There's two verbs here, all right, in verse 20. There's weep and there's lament. You may have uh, mourn and weep. The word for lament there, or mourn, this is the only time in the book of John that it's used, but the word weep is used five other times by John. The other five times that that word is used in John, it's every single time referring to death. It's connection with death. So what do I, why do I say that? Well, in verse 20, we see kind of part one and part two. We see that he's saying, you'll weep and lament, but then, yes, you will be sorrowful, but then it says, your sorrow will turn to joy. So two different episodes are going to happen. You see, Jesus would die, and it would absolutely lead to deep grief for the disciples. They would feel hopeless, wouldn't they? On the other hand, you know who wouldn't feel hopeless? The world, the persecutors, the ones that want Jesus dead. The ones that are in open rebellion against God. What Jesus is saying is, you're going to be grieving. You're going to be grieving my death. And yet the people that kill me would be rejoicing because they seemingly have disposed of me so decisively. That's what's happening here. And so you're going to be sad. But the world is going to be so excited because they think I'm gone for. But there's a second part. He says that their sorrow, the disciples' sorrow in association with death will be reversed into joy when they see that death itself has been reversed into life. And so Jesus illustrates how this sorrow will vanish so quickly in, verses, in verse 21, which I think this is so neat. It's neat when Jesus illustrates what he's teaching, right? And look at verse 21. He does this. <coughs> he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, childbirth. 
Her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Our greatest moments of joy often arise out of our greatest moments of sadness or discouragement or anxiety. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. When you have a steady job and you're pulling in a paycheck, life is good, but you really don't pay that much attention or mind to it. But then you get laid off and the discouragement and the sadness, those things hit, don't they? It's hard to make ends meet. And so what before you didn't realize you were so grateful for, now you realize what a gift that job was. But now you're in the pit. You're sad. You're discouraged. But when God provides a job, what? You're elated. You're joyful. In fact, you're more joyful than you were when you had the job in the first place. Because joy comes oftentimes from the deepest moments of sadness. Before your loved one contracted cancer, received that cancer diagnosis. Everyone was fine, but... You know, when they got cancer, everyone was absolutely devastated. And then you start to realize what a gift their health really was. In the moment, it didn't really seem like that. But when sorrow hits, you realize what a gift and what a joy it was. But when the doctor told you that that cancer was in remission, the joy exceeded even where you were before the diagnosis. Because joy oftentimes the greatest moments of joy arise out of our deepest moments of sadness or discouragement or anxiety. He talks about birth, childbirth in verse 21. You know, you really don't get the newborn without things like morning sickness and swollen ankles and contractions, right? We know these things to be the case. You don't get the joy without some of the complications and the problems that come with it. I don't think that I'll ever really forget the births of our children. I don't think that you're supposed to. I think that those are such momentous occasions that you're supposed to remember those things. But especially the first one, right? The second one, my son Zion, he's, it went so fast and it was, it was just a blur. I'm sure it wasn't so much a blur to my spouse, okay? Uh, to my wife, she probably remembers it really well. Uh, but his birth was such a blur, but I really remember Shiloh's. It was something uh, different that just stood out. That was the day that I realized that my wife is way tougher than I am. Okay, just, there's just no cutting corners about it. She's just a lot tougher than I am. Uh, man, she pushed for uh, an hour and a half, which I think is a long time. I'm not a medical professional, but I think that's a pretty long time. <laughs> Some of your faces are, yep, that tells me that's a pretty long time. Okay, uh, she pushed for an hour and a half. And guys, you know, a lot of you know me pretty well and know that uh, I'm, a, I'm a pretty, uh, I struggle with anxiety in a lot of ways. Uh, but that day, my anxiety was through the roof, Okay. To this day, if I'm if I hear a hospital like heartbeat monitor, I get like post traumatic stress because I remember sleeping on the couch right before the day and like I couldn't sleep. Not because I was about to give birth, but because like I was about to just see all this go down, you know what I'm saying? And I was a nervous wreck. And I can't hear that heartbeat monitor even today. When we went back and Zion was about to be born and I heard that thing and I'm like <sighs> started to have like cold sweats and stuff, I'm like, I don't let them be here. I remember, <laughs> I remember um, when Brooke was, I mean, this is so ridiculous. You're all like, you weren't even doing anything. I get it. Okay, just listen. All right. I remember eating Brooke's ice chips, like trying to calm down. <laughs> like they're for her because she can't eat for like 24 hours or something. And I'm like, oh, we're going to get through this. I'm going to get through this. I, went, I, was, I remember going to the bathroom probably four or five times between contractions. Because I was like looking at myself in the mirror, splashing my foot. <sighs> 
like I was about to play the championship game or something like that. And I was so anxious because in those moments, it was, it was heavy. And I remember, you know, more seriously, I remember Brooke being just absolutely exhausted. I mean, an hour and a half is a long time. An hour and a half, she was pushing, exhausted. She was in so much pain. I was praying so hard in those moments. And I, was, I started to become fearful because I could tell that Brooke was starting to get discouraged because she had been pushing so long. And I did not want her to have to have a C-section. Just, I mean, the emotional toll that comes with that, plus the risk. And so I was beginning to be fearful because she had been pushing so long. She was so exhausted. And I was like, this, this ain't going to happen. And so I remember being pr- so prayerful and praying so hard that it would just happen. And then suddenly, I hear my daughter. It was just amazing. I mean, it was my, my joy at the moment was like I had just seen Jesus walk on water. I mean, I had witnessed with my own ears, my own senses, my own eyes, I had witnessed a new life. So much joy right after so much sorrow, so much anxiety, so much difficulty. For myself, not a big deal. For Brooke, big deal. And yet, so much sorrow, so much difficulty, so much frustration was followed by the greatest sense of relief and joy that I think we have ever experienced. Childbirth is a time of great sorrow for the woman, but we had another baby. You know? It doesn't last. You forget about it, in a sense. You're like, well, I didn't forget. But you kind of did. Because that anguish it becomes small in comparison to the joy. Why? It's not as though the pain is forgotten. It's just that it no longer matters. The agony of childbirth has become a distant memory in light of the present joy. And that's the point. The point is that the joy of bringing new life overcomes the sorrow experienced to get there. That's what Jesus is saying. You will experience great sorrow. But the new life that is coming will make it a thing of the past. Such a small and minor and forgettable detail because you have new life. He says this in verse 22. He says, so also, just like the woman in childbirth, he says, so also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And check this out. No one will take your joy from you. You have sorrow now, but Jesus isn't staying dead. And then we'll party, right? Then it'll be a joyous celebration, not a time of sorrow. Because the sorrow Jesus and the disciples would experience would bring life to themselves. And get this, millions and millions and myriads and countless others. Because that's the good news of the gospel. Is that Jesus' death, though sorrowful, was followed immediately by a joyful time that was your death sentence brought back into new life sentence with Jesus. Your sin was paid for at the cross of Christ at a wonderful cost and a terrible cost. And you're right, it was free to you. It cost you nothing, but it cost Jesus everything. But the good news of the gospel is that he did not stay dead. And because of that, you don't have to stay dead either. That if you placed your faith and trust in Christ, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that you who were far off from God, separated due to sin, can be brought near by the blood of Jesus and the empty tomb of that same Jesus. Joy. Sorrow. Totally overcome with joy. 
And here's the main point that Jesus is making. It's not just that. It's not just those facts. It's not just the joy, but it's the lasting joy. He says that devastated men were mere moments from seeing their master arrested, crucified, killed, murdered. And here's the thing. He says, he says not just that those things are going to happen, but he says that your joy will, cannot be taken away. He says, no one will be able to take your joy from you. It's the last part, the last part of verse 22. He says, and no one will take your joy from you. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to guys that were going to be persecuted. They're going to be miserable. And he's saying, it don't matter. It doesn't matter. No one will be able to take that joy from you. How can he say that? This is why he can say that. Because thieves take possessions. Diseases take health. Death takes life and family. Because all those objects are open to compromise. How can your joy not be attacked? Because Jesus ties their joy not to their circumstances, but to them seeing him again and knowing that he conquered death. And no amount of torture, no amount of persecution, no amount of beatings, no amount of bullying can change that fact. It is finished, he said. And he is alive. And joy can't be touched because it's rooted in that reality, not any other reality. Christian, if you lack joy, or if it is constantly vulnerable, you need to ask yourselves this question, where is my joy rooted? Where is my joy rooted? If your joy is rooted in a relationship, or in money, or in friends, or in your health, or in work, or in your Instagram account, or in social acceptance, or in your sports performance, then when those things or that thing is attacked, your joy will be attacked along with it. You, make, you see that, right? If your joy is attached to something that is able to be compromised, it's, it's vulnerable. It's vulnerable to attack. But rooting your joy in the gospel renders, in, renders any and every attack of the enemy absolutely futile. Why? Because Jesus is alive and there's no undoing that victory. And so you that struggles to find joy and to just have a smile in your face and a, and a song in your heart. We just sang the song, It Is Well. Though Satan should buffet. That doesn't say buffet, Okay. Though Satan should buffet. Do you know what that means? It means beat on you. Though Satan should beat on you. And though trials should come, this is the blessed assurance that we control, that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And then we can sing, it is well with my soul. That's the gospel. Is that he can buffet all he wants. But there's no way he can take away the fact that Jesus died for your sin. Christian, is Jesus enough? Is he enough to substantiate your joy? Is he enough? Or do you need Jesus plus? Is Jesus enough? It's resistant to attack. But God also provides a way to see your joy not just exist, but become strengthened. This is the second quality of the believer's joy. My joy when anchored in the gospel. And that is... That it's strengthened through communion with God in prayer. It's strengthened through communion with God in prayer. 
Jesus has already hit on the principle of praying in his name. He's done that in chapter 15. We've already looked at that. He talks about praying in the name of Jesus. In fact, he did it not only in chapter 15, also did it in chapter 14. What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? It means to pray along with his desire, along with his character. And so here, he's going to bring that full circle by speaking on it again, but not just instructing it, but rather on putting it in a package of saying it in terms of the joy of his death and his resurrection. All right, look at verse 23. In that day, that's the day of his resurrection, okay? In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. The phrase, in that day, I mentioned it a moment ago, it means resurrection day. More specifically, it means when Jesus' work is completed and the helper, the Holy Spirit, has come. We talked about that last week, that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, will guide the disciples into all truth. And so what he's saying is, in that day, when sin is paid for, when I am resurrected, when the helper has come, in that day, he says, you will ask nothing of me. What does that mean? You'll ask nothing of me? You're thinking to yourself, no, I ask Jesus things all the time. Well, this is what he means. He's talking to the disciples, all right? The disciples were always asking him questions. Jesus, where are we going next? What's the plan? They would often want, a clar- want clarity on what's going on. What are you doing that for? Show us the reason that you're doing these things. What Jesus is saying is, when I am raised and God has given you his spirit, you won't need to ask me the plans of God. They will be finished and the spirit will guide you. In other words, guys, we know so much more about God's plans and what he's doing because we live on the other side of Jesus. Did you know that? Think about how big of a question mark it was to live in the time where you were either a New Testament saint without the New Testament or you were an Old Testament saint without knowing that Jesus would arrive when he did and did all that he did. It's a big question mark. But what Jesus is saying is, disciples, you won't need to ask me any more questions because the plans of God will be made known to you. So you won't ask me anything, he's saying. He says, truly, truly, in verse... uh, Where is it, 23? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So he's saying is, the direction of those questions will change. You won't ask me anything. Now, you will go directly to the Father, asking him in those things in my name. That phrase, truly, truly, what he's saying is, matter of fact, or also, on top of that, not only will you not ask me things, but you will be granted access to the Father. Look at verse, the second part of verse 23 and also verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Verse 24, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, he's not saying that he will grant any prayer as long as you end it with the phrase, in Jesus' name. Right? I've kind of joked about that, that I used to think that that was just some magic phrase, some tagline that you put on the end of any prayer, and then God's character will be on the line. You could pray for anything. You could pray for a girlfriend or a wife or a husband or a car. Well, you said in Jesus' name, and so those are the magic words. God, your reputation's on the line. That's not what that means, all right? This is what Jesus is saying, that whatever you pray in accordance with me, in other words, in accordance with my will, with my desire, what I want for you, it absolutely, 100% of the time, will be granted. Now, we talked about that already, what it means to pray in accordance with the desire of God, but I want to focus more on what the result of that would be. Look at the last part of verse 24. Ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy 
may be full. What's the result of praying in Jesus' name? It is full joy. It's overflowing with joy. It is strengthening your communion with God in prayer. A few weeks ago, um, I preached uh, on, on a Sunday morning and it was a heavy message for me, okay? And a lot of you guys were here that night and we, we did things a little bit differently that night. Uh, it was a heavy message for me just in preaching. And so um, I was heavy hearted. In fact, right after we got done with the service that morning, um, I, I immediately felt the need to, to labor in prayer because something just wasn't right. I felt empty and, and I felt like uh, I wasn't supposed to preach anymore that day. And I was preaching that night. I was coming back during the evening service and I was, I was down. I mean, I was obviously excited to preach. I love preaching. Um, but for some reason, I, I, I always, you know, feel empty in a sense because you're, you're pouring out, you know, but you're also full. It's kind of a weird thing. But that day especially, it, I felt like I was done. And I felt like God was telling me that I was done. And so I labored in prayer that afternoon. I even spoke to my father about it. And I was like, Dad, I don't, I don't think that I'm supposed to preach tonight. Um, and so he's like, well, you know, if you think that that's what the Lord's not leading you to do, then, then you should listen to him. And so I felt like what God was leading us to do that night was to have a, a, a unique service where we just gave testimony. And so I got up here and I just said, I'm not supposed to preach tonight. I don't think. And I said it could just be indigestion, but I don't think that I'm supposed to preach tonight. And so I just went and sat down and, and opened the, this place to, to just share what God is uh, doing in, in your hearts. And so um, man, it was an amazing night uh, of just celebrating God's work in our lives. For those of you that were here, you know how amazing that night was. It was special. And uh, it, was, it was especially special for me. Um, and I want to do it again soon. Uh, one of the things that uh, one of you said when you came up here, I won't uh, put this person, this, this woman on blast. Just, I don't know, I just don't feel like it. Uh, but uh, someone said that they were, and I didn't mention, you know, a lot of those details, but someone mentioned that they, they got up here and they said that that afternoon uh, they were, you know, heavy hearted as well, and that they were talking to their husband in the kitchen, and they said uh, that afternoon, I hope that Brother Caleb doesn't preach tonight, which I'm like, that's kind of messed up, right? No, I'm kidding. I didn't take it that way at all because what they said was, I hope Brother Caleb doesn't preach tonight because God is still working on me from this morning. And it was just such a heavy message. And so I, I don't know, I just hope he doesn't preach tonight. I'm paraphrasing. I wasn't there, obviously. But when I heard that, she said it happened in the afternoon. That's when I was wrestling with those things. And it was just neat because she and I were feeling the same thing. And that is that I wasn't supposed to preach that night. And so when I heard that, and she, I mean, she don't even realize how, how amazing that was for me, because what that did for me is that it confirmed in my heart that I had heard from God, and that I was doing the right thing, and that I was listening to Him, and that my joy was full. You see what I'm saying? That's praying in the name of Jesus. It's linking with His will, linking with what he wants and linking with his desire. And if you're linking constantly with what Jesus wants, what Jesus wants for you, that's what it means to pray in Jesus. And so uh, that night I went home, I talked to Brooke a long time about that. And even for days, guys, my joy was so full. I shared it with my family. Their joy was full. Why? Because God answered my prayer. He made it known that he heard me and that he was with me and that he was filling me up. Guys, that's what your prayer life is for. 
It's so that your joy may be strengthened, so that it may be made full. That's why God makes access possible to you, is that the point is, God answers prayer so that your joy, excuse me, so that your joy will be resolved and refreshed. Guys, the the goal, the goal of our joy is that our gospel joy's aim will be that our prayers are not for our self-comfort or for self-interest, but that our joy will be a gospel joy and the aim of our prayers be celebrating the work of God in our lives. That's the goal of your prayer life. Prayer time is not just some arbitrary duty. Guys, it's communion with God. Don't you understand that? That the God of the universe who created all things and brought all things into order, He wants to just do life with you. He wants to talk to you. He wants to have communion with you. Prayer is not some dutiful thing that we do because we just have to. Prayer is access to God. And its purpose is that your joy may be made full. It's not a dead requirement. It's a desperate plea. And I think that if we're honest with ourselves, the reason that we struggle with joy, you know, the disciples were, they lived in terrible circumstances, all things considered. Terrible. But their joy wasn't compromised because their joy was rooted in the gospel. And I think about ourselves today. Guys, we don't lack. We don't lack. We live in wonderful circumstances. Even with the state of our current country and political situation, we live in amazing circumstances. A historical religious anomaly. It's never happened before. We have such security and blessing as God's church. It's never happened before. We have amazing circumstances. And yet, we struggle more than any people group maybe in history to attach our joy as Christians to the gospel and not to our situation. What gives? Our prayer life is lackluster. Our time in the Word is not prioritized. Our evangelistic presence is lazy. I think that those things are symptomatic of a heart issue. And the heart issue is if we are more in love with Jesus and what he did for us on the cross of Christ, if we're more in love with Christ than we are to our little bubble, our joy won't be attached to the bubble. Our joy will be attached to what we have in Christ. And maybe maybe you come to this place today struggling and wanting to find that. And maybe there's something there for you. But maybe... You're void of joy, not because of the things that I've mentioned already, but because you have never, or not for a long time, really ever been rooted in the gospel. And that you don't have joy in this life because you've never linked yourself to the person of Christ as Lord and Savior, submitted to Him in every way, and asked Him to come into your life and rescue you from eternity and condemnation apart from God. Let today be the day that your joy is made full, only possible by the cross of Christ. Let's pray together. Father,
Lord, we started this morning wanting to be honest about our situation right now. You know our circumstances and you know when life is is a real bummer and you know when we're on cloud nine. Lord, today, I pray that you would convict our hearts to see uh, blind spots where we lack joy rooted in Christ and attach our joy to things of this world. Lord, help us to fall humbly at the feet of Jesus and root our ultimate joy, not in whether or not our circumstances are positive or negative, but to root our joy in what you have already finished for us. We love you so much, Lord. Help us now as we respond to respond to you in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.